welcome to FTI's Investigation Series podcast, The Explosion of Data and What That Means for Investigations Part 2. My name is Sandeep Jadav and I lead FTI's technology team in Asia and I'm based in Hong Kong. Throughout this podcast series, FTI experts will discuss the latest issues and trends impacting the world of investigations. And today's conversation is about the evolution of investigations over the last 20 to 30 years, challenges we're seeing in Asia, the types of emerging data that we're now encountering, and how we're integrating them into the bigger picture. Today, I'm joined by our special guests, Scott Warren from Squire Pattern Box in Tokyo, and my colleague, Tim Anderson, in San Francisco. Scott, I'll pass on to you for a quick intro. Well, it's a great pleasure to be here, Sandeep, and uh, FTI, thanks for inviting me on board. Um, I think you asked for me to give a little background so people can uh, know a bit about uh, who I am and my perspective on this, so you can either ignore what I say or, or, or take it as uh, something that might be important. Um, I'm a U.S. attorney that has lived in Asia for almost 30 years. Um, Much of that has been in-house with Sega as a general counsel and then with Microsoft. Uh, And in both those roles, I did a lot of um, of digital evidence issues uh, throughout the region and then had the chance to work with uh, an investigative company that also does computer forensics and e-discovery and run the region for that and then work with uh, another Uh, e-discovery company to open the Japan office. Uh, In that time, I had a great opportunity to work with uh, FTI's uh, Japan, now Japan team, uh, Daisuke Nakajima and Suguru Yoshida, who uh, were great to work with. And uh, so I'm very happy to uh, be on this uh, uh, podcast. Now I'm currently working with a law firm called Squire Patent Boggs, and I'm focused uh, besides on um, these digital evidence issues on data privacy, cybersecurity, uh, IP litigation, and that sort of thing. So thank you very much for allowing me to join you. Awesome. Thank you for that, Scott. Uh, now passing on to Tim Anderson in San Francisco. Hi there. I'm uh, Tim Anderson. I'm a managing director in uh, FTI's technology segment. Uh, for the past five years, uh, I've led our global emerging data team where we focus on uh, issues related to uh, cloud data sources and, and hopefully a topic of our, our conversation today. Uh, for the past 20 years, I've been involved in uh, legal technology. I started my career at, uh, at Morrison Enforcer and have been subsequently involved in all aspects of uh, litigation consulting, e-discovery, uh, disclosure, uh, from everything from private commercial litigation to uh, complex government investigations. Again, very happy to be here. Uh, thanks for having me. I look forward to the conversation. Lovely. Thank you, Tim. Thanks, my guests, for joining me today. Just by way of background to set the scene a little bit, when I first started in this industry, the hard drives that we we're encountering in people's desktop computers were probably around four to six gigabytes in size. Laptops are a real rarity and the devices took an age to image. The types of searches that we could perform were extremely primitive, you know, sometimes just a generic text search over word process files that we could literally just highlight and send on. Um, So starting with you, Scott, I'd say that you've got a pretty unique perspective on matters. You've held senior legal positions at Microsoft, Sega. Uh, You led the forensic technology team for Epic in Japan. And you're now leading cybersecurity for Squire Pattern Box in Tokyo. You've been doing investigations, litigation, and dealing with digital evidence issues in Asia for nearly, what, 30 years? 
have these changed over these years? Well, that's uh, that's a long time. It makes me feel kind of old to think about uh, think about it that way. But um, <laughs> when, when I remember first kind of coming into uh, contact with that here in Asia, I was with Microsoft, and we had done some raids of uh, some counterfeiters in uh, a certain country in Asia. And actually, the police had done the raids. They'd seized about six computers. They had no idea what to do with them. Uh, they turned them over to us so that we could then try to categorize who they were doing business with, the counterfeiters were doing business with. And we had, you know, somebody just, uh, you know, going through each one, doing queries, creating a, a spreadsheet with uh, the different names of people involved. And it was all done by hand. This would have been 2004 timeframe. And so there just wasn't any of these tools. And so it was a, it was a crazy time and a very difficult labor intensive uh, practice. If you dial that forward about, you know, for the last 10 to 15 years, the issues have really been, you know, kind of technical. And part of that is, uh, although certainly English and Latin-based languages were really good, the CCJK, which we, is the two Chineses, Japanese and Korean was difficult. You'd oftentimes get garbled characters. There was a lots of erroneous issues because of word breaks and lack of word breaks in several languages. and. There was also a lot of challenges in collecting um, uh, data, digital data, because of unique software and encryption uh, that we just didn't see in a lot of other places in the world. And then we had a lot of logistical issues, uh, collecting data from you know, distant locations. India doesn't allow you to, or didn't want you to take uh, hard drives in, into the country. So you needed to source them there and spend a couple of days getting those ready to be able to, to load. Um, cell phones were really difficult because you know, there was so many different formats uh, and, you know, J Japan alone had, I think, had six different formats uh, that were not unified in any way. And uh, most of that time, multi-language document review was done in, in the U.S. by U.S. law firms. And so there was quite a bit of cost involved in that. Probably five mm -hmm. to 10 years ago, I'd say the, the, the issues technically were that we saw an increased use of AI and technology-assisted review, which was great, but still the CCJK issues were there and whether or not you're really capturing and doing a good TAR investigation in those languages was, was questionable um, and increasingly got better, but that was at that time difficult. Logistically, I think from cell phone side, things got easier um, because we started to unify around two main formats, you know, Android and, and, and Apple. Um, and so we started losing a lot of those different difficulties, you know, in, in trying to get in uh, data from those. Um, and then from a, a document review, we started to see that there was a lot more um, remote uh, reviews done either locally or in India or um, uh, done by vendors and not so much by the law firms, um, or at least increasingly for foreign language review. From a legal side at that time, the real big issues were the, you know, certainly we'd worry about the EU rules, GDPR wasn't on, but there still was a lot of rules that prevented you from kind of doing an investigation with European data out of Europe. Um, I certainly thought about it a lot with Korea because they've got incredibly strict data privacy rules there. And there was issues about whether or not you could get data out of Korea easily. And then there was this thing called the China State Secrets Law, which you know, terrified anybody that was doing a bribery investigation because it was broad enough at the end to say 
anything we deem to be a state secret is a state secret. And so you would end up having to do any of those investigations in China in a way that allowed you to uh, not move the data until you had to, or they had a very limited amount of data to remove. I was just about to say, Scott, basically the Chinese state secret, state secrecy rules and laws are fairly nebulous to say the least. I mean, how do people go about interpreting them? I mean, they can cover such a wide range of different sort of outcomes. What's your approach generally when dealing with that? Yeah, I think I think you just have to be practical. Um, you know, again, at that time, the China state secrets law was kind of the the rule that you paid attention to. And, and it made sense, you know, things that dealt with with um, uh, national defense and those types of things were pretty easy. I think there's 11 enumerated items, but that last thing, which was anything we deemed to be a state secret made you wonder if you're in a government bribery case, was somebody going to deem it a state secret uh, mm. after the fact? And, and so what you would see in those cases is increasingly you would form your investigative team in China to do as much of the heavy lifting of that investigation before moving out anything that uh, you know would was uh, material to the other case or to the case that you were that you were looking at, um, and so that's that's the way we kind of dealt with it when it when we came up with those issues. In the last several years, I mean, the the issue has been the explosion. The volume has just exploded, um, you know, so so much that you have so many more types of data and and to get through. Um, but certainly the the tools have increased significantly in allowing you to do that more effectively. So, um, you know, you've got now TAR and, and uh, technology assisted review and things like that, AI uh, enhancements and other types of sophisticated um, efforts you can do to get through a large volume of digital data. Logistically, um, there's certainly been, you know, an ease in collections. You don't necessarily have to have somebody on site at every location you're gonna collect from cloud-based computing and cloud-based collections or even remote collections have become pretty widespread and, and welcome. So that certainly eases the collection part. But I think we've had more challenges now that uh, SMS and other types of, of apps allow people to communicate and the different types of ways or ways that, that people communicate on them. And sometimes that's with encryption and other things that, that causes you to uh, to have to uh, uh, take care of that. And certainly cell phones have become more complicated because of thumbprints and face prints and other ways to get through uh, to encrypt that data uh, in ways that make it much uh, more difficult uh, to do things logistically. Uh, finally, with the legal side, there's just a myriad of data privacy laws that have grown up and are increasing throughout the region. And so there's so many more places to worry about. Yeah, I'm sure what you've seen in the last 15 to 20 years, same as me, is that the smoking gun, so to speak, used to be maybe an email sent from a Hotmail account on someone's work laptop. But now, increasingly, that's now confined to people's messaging applications on their phones. And that's where the real treasure trove of information is. Yes, exactly. Yeah. So, I mean, you mentioned China there, Scott. So... Focusing particularly on China, how do you think the considerations have changed in relation to moving data out of China over the last few years? So, so that's become much more complicated as uh, two new laws, or at least one new law has been passed and one's on its way. Uh, one of them is the China cybersecurity law. And essentially that, um, although it did deal with data privacy uh, issues, um, uh, you know, in, in general, it basically said if it's something dealing with the critical information infrastructure, 
then it is something that we're going to uh, more carefully look at. And again, this is not that different from the state secrets. It, it deals with things that you would expect, military, defense, uh, financial institution information, food, transportation, banking. Um, and so those things you can kind of get your head around a little bit. Uh, energy is another one. But it has this kicker at the end, which it says anything which might affect the political or socioeconomic infrastructure of China. And uh, these things have actually been the way they've enforced the rules the most uh, to date on this. And so if you have something, I mean, let's say, for example, you were representing a solar energy you know, client who's investigating their China branch, um, are they in some way a state secret or, or not state secret necessarily, but a critical information infrastructure upon which you would want to limit taking stuff out uh, about and, and that would focus your, your investigation more locally? Um, and then uh, on top of that, so that's the China's uh, cybersecurity law. There's the new personal information protection law, which is in draft form right now, but it's gone through several drafts and we expect it to pass soon. And that's going to apply to any personal data collected in China, in which case you'll have to, you know, get either individual consent or past government, you know, security assessment or never a number of other things. Um, it will also require you to have a designated representative in China who can answer to the authorities. Um, and and be responsible to them if if uh, anything is if they feel that you've done anything wrong. But I think one of the interesting uh, twists on that law is it says that before any company can give data uh, from that was collected in China to foreign law enforcement or in response to a legal inquiry, they must get approval from the government, the Chinese government, that is. So that's a really interesting kicker in there, and it means that there's a lot more groundwork you're going to need to do before uh, moving things out of China now. Well, that's pretty interesting. I wasn't aware of that. Um, so if we take a couple of steps back and look more broadly, what do you think the current challenges are in dealing with digital evidence across other countries, you know, maybe specifically in Asia? Yeah, so so again, I used to worry a lot about um, investigations that would pop up in Europe because I wouldn't necessarily want to move data in and out of Europe or from Asia into Europe because of application of data privacy laws there and how they'd work. So then you'd run two separate reviews and have to dedupe across them or try to, if somebody in a reviewer in, in Europe or UK says this is relevant, how do I make sure that Japan review handles that? So those types of things were primarily Europe. Increasingly, um, uh, it was also Korea and China. Uh, over the years, just because of the way those uh, laws worked. Uh, now, actually, I think it's much more complicated because uh, so many places in Asia have uh, GDPR-like laws that restrict your ability to move data out of the country without some type of approval um, or some other type of uh, authorization given by the uh, data privacy authority. So we've got Japan, Thailand, Singapore, Australia, Vietnam, Philippines, all of them have uh, GDPR-like requirements. Vietnam is in some ways a data localization law, depending upon the type of, of, uh, of entity you're running. Um, and so, and then you've got other places where, you know, you want to be very careful about moving the data out unless you've given the proper authority. I'm sorry, you've given, you've given uh, the, the authorities the proper in, um, information in order which to uh, determine whether you can get it out. 
So those things, I think, just greatly complicate how you do uh, your investigations with digital evidence across the, uh, you know, in, in a global entity. Got it. Thank you, Scott. I mean, from what you've just described, this all sounds terribly complicated. If you are like a firm operating here in Asia or more globally, how do you recommend that you should deal with all these new challenges? So I think, like a lot of things, just having, you know, awareness, um, having people that understand the nuances of this, you may not be able to uh, follow every law exactly and still reach the necessary goals of pursuing your case. Um, and so you may have to be selective. So having some nuanced understanding about what those laws are, um, I think you need to realize that not any one answer probably, you know, solves it. You're going to have to think about it where you have your biggest risks and, and, and then also kind of think about, is this um, uh, the type of case that's going to garner national attention or, or, or not? And uh, so, uh, and then you basically do it like you do any other type of investigation. Is it an overt, you know, investigation where the subject knows that, that you're gathering the data? Is it still an internal investigation where it's covert and you're trying to figure out, um, you know, what's going on. There are some very different rules about how you can do each of those uh, depending upon where you are. Um, so I think it's just uh, to, to consider that. I think also uh, now you have to really use your tools, your um, automated tools and, and other uh, discovery tools uh, very selectively. Um, so for example, if it's a data privacy case, you may want to look across it for uh, 16 or 17 digit credit card numbers because you wanna determine whether or not a credit card has been leaked and that may lead to notification requirements in the United States, but it may not lead to other places. Uh, social security numbers in the US are you know, their length, but Japan has a different length of social security numbers. So you can use the technology to do a lot of sophisticated review and identify where it is, but you need to really think selectively about what that what what are the definitions and values um, for those um, uh, personal IDs that you're going to look for? Um, I think you need to think about how you might use anonymization or pseudonymization ways to obfuscate the, what the what the data is, um, especially in transit, um, and limit the amount that goes out um, so that you're you, you know you're limiting your risk that way. Um, you need to think about how you train uh, a TAR system. Uh, I always found this interesting from a, from a U.S. litigation standpoint, um, how you train the system to know uh, whether a document is relevant or not. There's a couple different ways to do that, but the, but the, the easiest way, is in, especially when you're just doing an initial investigation, is to give it 15 of the smoking gun documents you have and say, hey, go find other things that are like this and that helps short circuit your review. But if you are in litigation in the United States, you may need to explain to the other side how you train the system. And that means you may have to give them those 15 smoking gun documents, which you may not want to. So I think you need to think tactically about how to do that. Uh, and I already talked, I think a little bit about deduping across data sets and trying to find a way to, to get that. The, the final recommendations I just would say is plan ahead. Um, it's a lot easier for you to gather employee data if it's already in your employment contracts. You know, that basic phrase, or, or in some places we have work rules, that, but that phrase that says, you know, you authorize us to be able to 
you know, gather and do an investigation on data where we have, you know, legitimate business needs and, um, and, and that sort of stuff may help you uh, in, your, in your review rather than thinking about it afterwards. Um, and then also just that aspect of data mapping and knowing where your data is, is incredibly important because in the pressure of, of these cases, it's really helpful to know exactly what the data is because that's oftentimes going to where the data is because that's often going to um, dictate what rules apply to it. Yeah, I completely agree on that one, Scott. Just very quickly, the, it's, having a decent sort of information governance policy in place is very important. So you can respond quickly to any sort of regulatory requests or indeed any investigations. And I think this is becoming a lot more prevalent in Asia. I've seen it certainly in the last sort of five to six months. I think it's only going to increase. Yeah. I, I, that's exactly right. I'd say the only other thing I'd recommend is really think about your vendor contracts. Those people that you're entrusting data to, uh, oftentimes we're finding in leaks. Those are those are the places where leaks are occurring. You, you may have a great data privacy pol or data policy and security policy and and all the rest, but if your vendors aren't required to have appropriate security and to notify you in the event they get breached or they have a data incident. Um, if they're not ready to help you with data subject access access requests, which the data subject says, hey, I want you to delete information about me, but they're not required to under your contract, that's a problem. Um, and then really wise to make sure that you have cyber insurance uh, in place, not only you, but your, your third parties, because a lot of times that can, that can help move a case forward uh, where the third party isn't really seeing the benefit. Lovely. Thank you very much for that, Scott. Very informative. Tim, you're at the forefront of FTI's efforts in dealing with emerging data sources. If we go right back to basics for a moment, could you tell us what emerging data sources actually are and why you think they're important to investigations? Yes, uh, back to basics. So um, I think you know we categorize emerging data sources as primarily cloud-based systems used by uh, organizations and, and individuals uh, to perform any number of you know business and, and end user functions. Uh, these are mainly platforms that have come up over the past several years, uh, really with a skyrocketing uh, increase in demand uh, occurring in, in 2020 because of the global shift to, to remote work. Um, you know why are they important to investigations? Well, the transition to cloud data architecture over the past 20 years has uh, fundamentally changed where and how uh, data is created and managed. Uh, these you know, cloud platforms have increased the volume of data being created, the variety of systems that are available, the velocity of change occurring to data formats. Uh, what hasn't changed though, is the need for organizations to plan, you know, to track transactions, to collaborate and, and communicate. So it's from this perspective that you know, what we call uh, emerging data sources are, are really just places you know, that contain facts and evidence, you know, the, the raw materials of uh, investigations. That's great, thank you, Tim. Um, what um, do you think are some of the specific challenges that you face with these emerging data sources? Yeah, well, you know, there are, there are so many. Um, I'd say, you know, in addition to just staying on top of, of what's out there, uh, a, a key challenge exists around the, the types of e-discovery functionality that you know, we've you know, come to take for granted really in, in legacy e-discovery. Um, you know, with some notable exceptions, uh, many of the uh, emerging data platforms 
uh, lack uh, a centralized built-in data governance functionality. Um, you know, rather than uh, e-discovery, uh, you know, the cloud providers have focused on on providing a, a really great end user experience. So, um, you know, any data collection and, and, and governance functions, you know, it's it's presumed, uh, you know, will be delivered through uh, an application programming interface or, or an API. Uh, you know, historically speaking, though, the legacy data collection market and the, you know, the supporting tools uh, have oriented towards accessing data on a physical device and, and not so much on APIs. You know, prior to 2020, there was very little visibility into the need for you know, this type of functionality. You know, there were, of course, a few of us out here, uh, you know, championing the cause, but it's clear now that, that the process of collecting data has really fundamentally changed. Um, over the years, we've built, uh, you know, pretty solid and, and defensible methods for connecting, you know, in with these emerging data sources. The trick really though is, is staying on top of uh, the continuous changes that are in, in, you know, inherent to, to this type of data. Um, I'd say another significant challenge is uh, with the variety of data formats uh, you know, that are present within emerging data sources. Uh, probably the, the biggest challenge uh, is related to short form messaging systems. So you know, Slack or, or Teams really, you know, these chat formats. Uh, in legacy e-discovery, our review and, and analysis workflows are based on the paper document paradigm. Uh, the presumption has been that you know a single document will be you know well formed and inclusive of all of the context you know that's really required to to make a relevancy decision about that particular document. Uh, in the case of uh, of short form messages, though, you know, we have a problem in that the that shorter, uh, more rapid nature of the communication leads to a much shorter document record. So, uh, you know, one uh, message might simply say, you know, just yes, for example. Um, you know, how do we determine the context of a message that just says yes? You know, um, you know, we could group those uh, a, a set of messages together. You know, but then we start to have a challenge of the you know uh, somewhat arbitrary nature of determining kind of what to group and 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 where to 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 start and to stop. Uh, in working with our clients, we built out you know some great technology uh, to help with this. And to you know arrive at more sensible and and defensible segmentation uh, decisions. Um, you know uh, another big issue that we're seeing, and, and this is really here uh, primarily in the in the U.S. and the regulatory investigation space, um, is related to uh, linked content or. Uh, you know, the practice of hyperlinking to a, a live document versus uh, attaching a document. So, you know, say a link to a box document in a, uh, you know, in a Slack message, for example, uh, should that be, you know, uh, treated as an attachment, you know, and, and referenced as such, or is it simply just a, another hyperlink, you know, like a, a link to any web page that may be on the internet? Um, the courts are starting to, to weigh in on this issue, but there really aren't the type of standards that we've come to rely on in our e-discovery work. Uh, at FTI, you know, we're relying on the context of the matter and the you know, specific data source or, or platform to really help guide us in assisting counsel you know, with determining the most defensible and, and, and efficient workflow and where and, and kind of when to, to push back on this linked uh, content issue. You know, there are some levers that we have in uh, civil litigation you know, that allow us to craft out uh, the arguments and, and, and you know, let a third party um, you know, make a determination as to you know, you know, what may be overly burdensome or 
what may be required for a particular matter. Um, in the regulatory context, uh, you know, we certainly have less um, you know, control over over what to uh, to produce. So that context is is important there. And again, the underlying technology that's available to us and the the specific platforms, because there are some differences and nuances. Um, you know, I think all of these issues and and really others will continue to be hot topics for for all of us throughout uh, the remainder of 2021 here and uh, into 2022. Thanks for that, Tim. I know from my own experience that some clients can be quite reluctant to adopt new technologies. You know, Scott mentioned TAR data types, you know, 10, 15 years ago, some clients weren't really interested in what was available on mobile phones. From your experience, Tim, how have your clients been getting to grips with how investigations are changing in respect to these new emerging data types? Yeah, um, it's certainly true. You know, the 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 good thing, though, um, uh, is that the 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 nature of of investigations really hasn't changed. Um, you know, the the need to establish fact patterns and, and timelines is is the same as it as it ever was. Um, you know, the particular cl uh, challenge that you know our clients are having with emerging data sources is really just ensuring that the the data collection is is complete. You know, given this sort of proliferation of of data and you know kind of the particular formatting uh, issues that we just discussed. Um, you know, a big part of of my job really is to ensure that you know at the outset of an, an investigation, you know, our clients know what you know what data we can get, and probably more importantly, you know, what data we can't get, and and orient from there. You know, really the you know council and uh, our you know clients in general um, are interested in in performing uh, thorough and, and complete investigations, and to the extent that that now you know takes place on uh, a number of platforms. Uh, that many of us, you know, hadn't heard of, uh, you know, five years ago, um, is just sort of the, the the current reality that we're in. But uh, you know, again, the fundamental nature of of investigations really really hasn't changed, and that's still what's driving a lot of our our practice there. So, um, you know, I think uh, you know cl uh, clients always want to want to do that. Yeah, that's true. I mean, when we first started in this industry, the majority of information we have found was in emails, but then that's moved to messaging platforms, WeChat obviously in China and Telegram and others elsewhere. Um, I'm sure this whole space is going to evolve dramatically over the next one, two, three, five years, and I'm quite excited to be a part of it. So I'd like to thank my guests for joining me today and what was an engaging discussion. We've got a lot more podcasts coming up. Um, so I ask you, please remember to hit the like button and subscribe so you don't miss out on any future episodes. Uh, if you'd like to find out more about what we do here at FTI Consulting and how we can help build a resilient future for our clients, please reach out to either me or any of today's guests via the FTI website. All right. Thank you very much. And goodbye. Goodbye.